The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. Good morning. It is really a privilege to be here this morning and to have the opportunity to be part of this series that Pastor Sissy has put together so well. And um, I am really thankful to have the passage that I get to share on today. So my name is Sam Wan. Um, I serve at Dallas Seminary with field education and occasionally do a little bit of teaching for Old Testament. Uh, But my family and I now make IBC our home, and we are just so thankful for this church. Um, So there are uh, questions that Jesus asks, and as we have seen in these last several weeks, Jesus' questions are rarely ever actual inquiries. They're rhetorical. He is saying something through his questions. His questions are often piercing, convicting, revealing. But the one we're going to look at today in this story is all those things, but I'm going to say it is also a question that is incredibly liberating and comforting. But before we go there, I want to just look at the beginning of the book of John, the gospel of John, because uh, sometimes, oftentimes, we'll find that the biblical authors provide us with clues, valuable keys as to how to understand the landscape of their writing. And John does just this at the beginning of his gospel. In his theologically rich prologue, and I'm going to start in verse 14 and read a little excerpt from there, and you can follow along if you'd like. Uh, He says something incredibly profound about, uh, in a sense, why he's writing this gospel. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God But the one and only Son, who is himself God, and in his closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In Rudolf Bultmann's uh, excellent commentary on the Gospel of John, he says about this passage that this is where we see that one of the reasons that Jesus undertakes the incarnation and comes to us is because he becomes the fullest and most glorious revelation of who God is. In fact, at the very end of this passage, it says that Jesus is the one who has made him known. And in the Greek, that's actually the same word from which we get the word exegesis, meaning, in a sense, Jesus' very life and ministry and acts act as an interpretation and an explanation of who God is and what God does. So in that spirit, I really believe that that sets the tone really nicely for looking at this famous story today. We are going to look today at the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. So if you want to go there with your devices or your Bibles. And, And before I start, there is an elephant I need to address that's in this room. 
But thankfully, it's, it's not a scary elephant. It's like Dumbo. It's friendly. Um, here's the elephant. Some of you will look in your Bibles and note that there is some notations, and, and it appears differently in different places in different versions, but to the effect that uh, most reliable manuscripts do not contain this story. And I, I initially, you're a little nervous, like, wait, is this even biblical then? And, and the, the truth is, to be fair, the best, oldest manuscripts of the Gospel of John in Greek, the most reliable ones, do not have this story in it. Yes, that's true. Um, but... And yes, from a literary standpoint, scholars have done some analysis and said, yeah, it does not actually seem to be something John would have written. And so we're going to acknowledge that right off the front. That's the elephant. But it's a friendly elephant because this. The question of whether this story is authentic is a different question altogether. And, and many scholars have put it very well. This is very much likely an authentic Jesus story. In fact, it was one that was so precious, so beautiful, that the church, the earliest church in many places and many times, strove to preserve it. And so what happened is this beautiful story becomes a text in search of a context. And over time, it finds its way into the Gospel of John in this spot, and, and there's some good reasons for that. But, but here's the way I would uh, address this elephant and move on. This is a true story about Jesus. John may not have written it, but the early church made sure we knew this aspect of Jesus's life. And I'm so thankful that those early Christians did that. So let's look at this text. We're going to begin in John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And the narrator gives us an important clue here. He says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and continued to write. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until it was just Jesus and the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they now? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. 
As with all stories, setting is important. This is taking place at a time when Jesus has now been in, into his earthly ministry. Everyone that knows who he is, there's a buzz about him. He's in Jerusalem at this time, and he's teaching in the very temple grounds. This is significant, this is significant for Jesus is, is presenting himself publicly, and this is what concerns the religious leaders. They see him as a heretic, a blasphemer. They want him, they want his movement shut down. And so they set up this situation. It's a very public place. There is a large crowd gathered. It would be the perfect place to trap Jesus and to catch him, to cause him to stumble, to do something wrong so that they can then discredit him and eventually destroy him. And this is why they, they wait until he begins teaching and dramatically haul this woman in before him. It's a very public theatrical display. And then notice what they say. They said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. It's not simply an insinuation or an accusation. They caught her. And then they use the words, according to the law of Moses, this held incredible weight for the Jewish people. They said, we are to stone such women. And the narrator makes it very clear the issue here really isn't the woman's adultery. It is a trap. And the deviousness of this trap is that they have been watching Jesus throughout his time public, uh, public ministry. And what they noticed was a pattern and what they perceived as a weakness this Jesus eats with sinners. He sits down with tax collectors. He eats and spends time with drunkards and prostitutes. And so they said, this is perfect. There's no way Jesus will allow us to stone this woman. And not only is she guilty, she was caught. So there's no, there's no way he can get out of this. What a wicked thing to do to take the very grace that Jesus shows and use it as a weapon to try and destroy him. And this brings us to this iconic moment in this story. Um, Jesus's response here has become a part of literary consciousness. It's part of our cultural awareness. People all know the phrase, hey, he who is out with, without sin, why don't you cast the first stone? But let's look at what's actually going on here. But the first thing you're wondering is, what is Jesus writing? And I am with you. In fact, Chad, if you would have asked me to be part of that video and asked me what question I would ask, among the many I'm going to ask Jesus someday, one would be, please tell me, I would love to know what you're writing. Now, scholars <clears throat> have tried to, they've come up with a lot of, you know, very intriguing theory. Some people say maybe he, he, he was writing the sins of the people who were there. Others say that perhaps what Jesus did was he started to write out parts of the Torah that would absolutely just uh, counter their arguments. In fact, some scholars say maybe he wasn't writing anything at all. It may have just simply been a dramatic act. He bends down and doodles as a way to take control of the emotional pitch of this scene. But here's the thing, the narrator purposefully does not tell us. 
And it's a brilliant piece of storytelling because it's this narrative gap that takes us to the real heart of what Jesus is doing. You see, what the narrator is helping us see by not telling us what he wrote is, it wasn't any letter of the law that would save this woman. It was Jesus himself who would save this woman. It's him who would eventually become the price paid for her sin. It would be him, the body broken, the blood spilled, that allows for the forgiveness of her sin and for the liberation for her to experience. So then we look at here, and some people find this a bit scandalous. They wonder, though, shouldn't Jesus have at least addressed her sin? She was caught. She was guilty. But I think that's not the focus here because, one, this is a beautiful time and an instance where we see Jesus doing exactly what John said he would in the prologue, and that is he reveals the eternal God and his character which is centralized around this hallmark quality of grace upon grace upon grace. And this is what he shows to the woman. But the narrator also clues us in that there's a bet, there's more important sin going on here not to get lost in that. And that is the sin of the accusers. You see, they position themselves as those who are jealous for God and his law. They position themselves as the righteous. But actually, if you go back and look at the Torah, in Deuteronomy 22, yes, there is a law stating that if adulterers, plural, are caught in the act, they are to be killed. Notice there is no man here. They brought no man. This woman was not the only one guilty, but she's the only one brought forth. Leviticus 20 talks about putting to death adulterers as well. But there, the main concern is with holiness and purity because God's people uh, need that to be able to exist before a holy God. But here what we see is there is no concern for God's holiness, no concern for righteousness, and no concern for justice. This was just a trap. And this woman was just a tool to be used, abused, and discarded. If she gets stoned in the process, so be it. She was guilty. But our real goal is to use the law like a weapon against Jesus and trap him. And it does look bad because for Jesus, it seems like a pretty tough conundrum. I want to forgive this woman but I know that it will look like I am disobeying the very Torah, the very law that I have even affirmed myself is good. But Jesus' response is brilliant. He says, okay, go ahead, let's stone her, but it has to be the person who hasn't sinned. And notice it's the oldest who leave first. They're the ones where that retort catches them. And then the younger ones kind of follow the lead and realize, well, if those, if those guys are leaving, I probably better leave too. And that brings us to today's question. 
Imagine this public space that was just buzzing with drama and energy is now empty, and Jesus now turns to this woman. And again, it's a very rhetorical question. Clearly, no one is here. And he says, uh, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And then she says, Lord, sir, uh, no one. He says, well, then I don't condemn you either. And now go and leave this life of sin. He not only frees her, he sends her on this new journey to be all that she was meant to be, fully created in the image of God. And it's only because freedom that she can now go. It's important to see here that the accusers were guilty of this sin. They were taking the law and weaponizing it. The law was never meant to empower accusers. The law was supposed to be a guide for God's people as to one, how do we know the character and the righteousness of God? And two, how do we live in such a way to honor him? And so when you look at the Torah overall, you find that there are some things that just shine through. One, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. Just like it is love your neighbor as yourself. And then all these laws telling you how to be righteous, how to live in such a way that you become a reflection of God's character in this world. In an essence, you become salt and light you become a city on a hill. Nowhere in the law does it say we are to become accusers bent on the condemnation of others. Nowhere are we told that we are ultimately the judges of others. In fact, if you do look at scripture, there is someone who is known as the great accuser. Satan, that's right. So let the reader understand. But I, want to do, I do want to take us back to one particular Old Testament law that most people kind of miss when they're looking at the story. And there is another law in the book of Numbers, chapter 5, in which the Lord directly dictates to Moses how to handle a situation where a jealous husband has accused his wife of adultery. And this is an important scenario because in the ancient Near East, this was a very common problem that judges and legal experts were often required to weigh in on. Now, the key here is that in the case of Numbers 5, this is in a situation where there was no witnesses. So no one was caught. It was just a husband who's suspicious and wants to punish his wife. And so I'm not going to read all of the details in Numbers 5, but I'd like to do what's called a flashback. So I'm a big movie fan, and you'll see flashbacks in books as well. And I think it's just a brilliant tool when used well, because you know, you've seen it in the movie where you're going along and the story's just progressing, and all of a sudden the director gives you this cue, like an audio cue. There's a sound, and then there's a, a, a kind of a cut scene 
And all of a sudden you realize you're in the past. Maybe you're watching the protagonist as a child or you're seeing some past historical event. But in any case, the flashback is so valuable as a way to help you get fuller context, needed background, perhaps backfill some plot holes or gaps in our understanding. So I would like to do a flashback with you. So imagine this is a movie and Jesus is now just standing there presented with this incredibly clever trap. And what does he do? He doesn't panic. He just bends down and he just starts writing in the dirt of the temple grounds. And then I'm going to flash you back. The camera jumps and the sound changes. And now we are looking at Moses and Moses is standing before Yahweh. And, you know, we don't know what Yahweh looks like. So just Moses is all glowing and he's hearing these words. And basically, God basically tells him, here's how you are going to handle it if a man accuses his wife of adultery, but there are no witnesses. You are going to take, and and here's where it gets a little strange, you're going to take some holy water, and you're going to put it in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. And you're going to pronounce a curse on this woman that she's, that's when she drinks this. And the curse is essentially, hey, if you are guilty, if you did commit adultery, this water, this bitter water is going to cause you to uh, miscarry. And it's going to also cause you to become barren. But if you are not guilty, you will drink this and it won't do anything to you, in a sense. That's exactly the kind of the essence of Numbers 5. And so you're thinking, okay, this is really weird. In fact, in addition to the dust from the tabernacle, the priest is then supposed to put the woman under oath, saying that she accepts the terms of this judgment, and that what they then do is they're going to take the words of these, this law and they're going to scrape it into the cup. And you're going, how do they do that? Most likely they would have burned the scroll and then put the ashes in there along with the dust. So I, I, I used to be a pharmacist, so I was very curious, what is this bitter water and how would it work? So I, I, I was kind of did some digging into the backgrounds And I could not come up with a single reason why this water on its own would be lethal, why it would cause a woman to miscarry, or why it might cause a woman to become sterile. There's just nothing in there. Would it taste bad? Yeah. Would it be unpleasant? Yes. Now, to give you further context for the heart of God here, In other ancient Near Eastern cultures, there were similar ordeals. For example, in Babylon, they had the ordeal of the raging waters, not the bitter water. In this case, they would take the accused woman to a raging river and just throw her in. And it was just basically, hey, if she drowns, she was guilty. If she lives, then she was innocent. Narrator's note, women were almost always guilty. So you see, this bizarre ritual is actually Yahweh's brilliant way of protecting women in a culture and a time and a place where they were essentially helpless before their accusers. It's the heart of God. It's the way his law was meant to be used. 
to see, to protect, to bring what was best, and to do justice. Now, if a woman was guilty, there is no reason why God couldn't have enacted any of those judgments against her. So this was not just a a free get-out-of-jail card. This was not the minimization of sin. It was basically the protection of the helpless. It's what a righteous king is supposed to do. Now, here's the flash forward. We're back. You hear the whoosh, the camera cuts, and there's Jesus still writing in the dust. And here's the beautiful poignant resonance here. In Numbers 5, Moses is learning that you can take the dust of the holy ground of the tabernacle and you can take the words of the law and you can create this bitter water that will end up protecting the defenseless woman. And now, many, many years later, Jesus, who is the fullest revelation of that God, kneels in the ground and he takes the dust of that holy ground of the temple court. And then through his words, which he's about to say, he does the same thing. This is our God. This is God revealed through Jesus who comes to bring grace and truth and is the fullest manifestation of God's glory, which is grace upon grace already given. Grace upon grace upon grace. And so that brings us to our question, who now condemns you? I'm going to turn it to you now. Has no one condemned you? And thanks to Jesus, thanks to the reality of the cross and his broken body and his spilt blood, it's not that sin has no weight but it's that the forgiveness and the redemption we find in Christ is just greater still. There is no sin that his grace cannot outmatch. And so the question once again, has no one condemned you? And you know the answer. Now, I want to read this wonderful quote. It's a little long, but it's just sometimes someone else will just say it's so perfect that it's better to just read their words. F.F. Bruce is a noted uh, Bible scholar, and he wrote a wonderful book called Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. I love that title. And in it, he says this. So just follow along with me. The free grace of God, which Paul proclaimed is free grace in more senses than one. Free in the sense that it is held forth to men and women for their acceptance by faith alone, and free in the sense that it is the source and principle of their liberation from all kinds of inward and spiritual bondage, including the bondage of legalism and the bondage of moral anarchy. The God who in one parable after another freely forgives the sinner or welcomes the returning prodigal does not exercise the quality of mercy at the expense of his righteousness. He remains the self-consistent God whose very self-consistency is the reason sinners, as Malachi said, are not consumed. Or in the words of another Old Testament prophet, he does not retain his anger 
forever because he delights in steadfast love. That's Micah. But this is the kicker. But grace is manifested not only in God's acceptance of sinners, but in the transformation of those thus accepted into the likeness of Christ. You see, Jesus' grace upon grace did not end the second that that woman goes free. His grace continues upon her as she lives this life, leaving that life of sin and becoming all that she was meant to be as God's precious daughter, creation, image bearer. Missing this gospel truth has caused so much harm and pain. You see, the culture war mentality to be accusers who condemn sinners, it's backwards. It's anti-gospel. Jesus frees us, and in this freedom, we now can commune with God. We can walk with him and bear good fruit. Or as Paul says, where the spirit is, that's where freedom is. We are to be witnesses to this great salvation and freedom from sin. Witnesses, meaning we tell the story, we testify, we show it through our lives. Not accusers seeking the condemnation and the destruction of those still in bondage to sin. I really hope that IBC will continue to be the kind of church where we do not wage culture war, but rather we are about culture care and cultivation. So let me close with what F.F. Bruce so eloquently says. He says, where love is the compelling power, there is no sense of strain or conflict or bondage in doing what is right. The man or woman who is compelled by Jesus' love and empowered by his spirit does the will of God from the heart. For, as Paul would say, from experience, where the spirit of the Lord is, there the heart is free. Wherever you are in your journey here today, I can tell you from my story this is true. I am one who has a heart set free. So when Jesus asked, has no one condemned you? I know the answer. Like the woman, I stare at an empty courtyard. There's no one who can cast that stone now. And I live in that freedom and so do you. So no matter your history, what your sins, no one can cast that stone. Be free and make free. The Apostle Paul, a former sinner of all sinners, the apostle of the heart set free, said it best. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the life-giving spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that your believers, your people, faithful people over time and history saved this story for us. They preserved it. They knew this story was too precious to be lost. And I'm so glad that it is now for us in the word. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a body of believers who absolutely embrace the truth 
that no one can condemn us because in Christ there is no condemnation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new.